0: Hello and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zeb Larson, and I'm here today with Dr. Elizabeth Schmidt to discuss her new book, Foreign Intervention in Africa After the Cold War. Drawing on a variety of case studies, Dr. Schmidt reveals how foreign intervention in Africa, while drawing on a rhetoric of human rights and the prevention of violence, has been shaped by a number of unrelated interests that have led to a number of profoundly mixed results or set in motion further violence. Dr. Schmidt, uh, welcome to the New Books Network. Now, I I know you've been here before, but for our viewers who might not have heard, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Okay, thank you very much for having me here, Zeb. I really appreciate uh, you're doing the interview, and I like very much what New New Books Network does, uh, so I'm I'm delighted to be a guest for this podcast. Um, I was raised in a family with a strong concern for social justice and a spirit of social activism. I came of age... Uh, in the era of civil rights and the anti-Vietnam War movements. And then I backed into academia through the anti-apartheid movement in the late 1970s. So I'm not a straightforward academic if there is such a thing. Um, My first efforts at writing about Africa were at the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, D.C., where, as a member of the Africa Project, I wrote a little book called Decoding Corporate Camouflage, U.S. Business Support for Apartheid, and that came out in in 1980. It was intended as a tool for the U.S. divestment movement. That was the movement of uh, students, trade unionists, churches, state and local governments to sell stocks in U.S. businesses and close accounts in U.S. banks that were doing business in white minority-ruled South Africa. And the goal of the divestment movement was to put pressure on those corporations and banks to leave and stop sustaining the apartheid economy. So this book was intended as a tool for that movement. And as such, it was banned by the South African government. Um, So before it was banned, but after it was published, I took a little undercover trip to South Africa in 1981 to write for Maryknoll magazine. I had um, amazing access to community groups and um, church activists and trade unionists. Um, It was really quite an amazing experience, but I also attracted some attention from the South African Security Police, and so I was unable to return to South Africa until after the end of apartheid, which was 1994. I didn't get a chance to go for a few years after that. But as a result, um, when I went to graduate school to try to improve my training as a scholar so that I could be a more effective advocate for social justice in Africa, I wasn't able to go back and do my research in in South Africa. So I went to um, the University of Wisconsin in Madison and got a Ph.D. in African history. And there I developed an interest in the lives of ordinary people. So my earlier work had been much more um, at the level of the state, at the level of big business. And now um, as a graduate student and uh, early scholar, I was looking at grassroots um, actions, lives, um, et cetera. And so my doctoral research was done in Zimbabwe in the mid-1980s, so just a few years after that country had transitioned from an apartheid-like system of white minority rule to majority rule. And my work there focused on the impact of colonialism and Christian missionaries on African women, and that was my first academic book, Peasants, Traders, and Wives, Shown the Women in the History of Zimbabwe. I also did um, a a sort of secondary project on the impact of sanctions on Rhodesia. Um, And the reason I did that was for the anti-apartheid movement in the United States because the case of sanctions against white minority ruled Rhodesia was frequently held up as evidence that sanctions not only didn't work, but that they were counterproductive. They made the white minority regime stronger And I was arguing against that and did quite a lot of research and interviews with not only African activists, but with white businessmen who've been involved in busting sanctions and running the um, the sort of uh, outcast economy and um, found that in fact, sanctions in conjunction with the armed struggle and the oil price increase were extremely effective and were uh, an important component that resulted in pushing the white minority regime to the to the negotiating table in the late 1970s and majority rule in 1980. Um, So after that, I did something a little unusual for an academic. I shifted focus completely from English-speaking Southern Africa to French-speaking West Africa. And my next um, foray into research and life experience living in an African country was in the Republic of Guinea in French-speaking West Africa. And the research I did there, our archival research and oral interviews, resulted in two books about grassroots mobilization against French colonialism, which resulted in Guinea's independence in 1958. And so the first one was called Mobilizing the Masses, Gender, Ethnicity, and Class in the Nationalist Movement in Guinea. And the second one was Cold War and Decolonization in Guinea. And so they're both social histories, but also political histories of local people and their struggles against the colonial state. And then I'm sort of moving into the the, the present, including the book that's the focus of this interview. Um, the, The book that I published in the fall of 2018 is the second of two companion volumes about foreign political and military intervention in Africa. And these are very different from my earlier academic books in that they're not intended for experts. They're really intended for students, foreign policymakers, NGO staffers, um, the media, and the general reading public. Uh, and the idea is to undermine popular myths about the conflicts going on in Africa and the origins of those conflicts. So the first book came out in 2013, and it was about foreign intervention in Africa after the, uh, uh, sorry, during the Cold War. So from the Cold War to the War on Terror. And it looked at the transition from colony to independent nation state and the role the former colonial powers played in trying to shape and control those states, and also the new role of, of political and military intervention by the Cold War powers. So that was the first of the two books, and that was 2013. Now, the more recent book in 2018 is about foreign intervention in Africa after the Cold War, and it looks at the period from the 1990s uh, through uh, 2017, so also looking very closely at the role of of the war on terror uh, in in, uh, provoking uh, foreign political and military intervention in Africa. So um, again, this book is also intended to um, uh, undercut many of the popular myths about why Africa is in the state in which it finds itself.
0: Now I'm I'm curious, um, and I'm familiar with a lot of the the myths that you're describing here, but for the audience, what are some of the popular discourses that come out, especially regarding intervention in Africa during the Cold War and then more recently?
1: Okay, thank you. Um, well, first off, to outsiders, if you ask someone who's not really familiar with the continent just to close their eyes and brainstorm when they hear the word Africa, invariably you'll hear descriptions of a continent in crisis, riddled with war and corruption, imploding from disease and starvation. Africans are regularly blamed for this as well. That The idea is, well, gee, they've been independent for 50 years, 60 years. Why haven't they gotten it together? And, of course, um, people in the United States forget we suffered through a horrific, bloody war over the issue of slavery seventy years after our independence, and and in, and you know a secession of states in the South, et cetera. So, really, if you look at the long arc of history, um, African nations have not been independent of colonial rule for very long at all, and the vast majority of them have been forced because of their relative disempowerment in in the international arena, to accept what are often termed neo-colonial states that are very much dominated still by former colonial powers or other countries from the global industrialized north. And so um, that is a focus of, of both books, looking at the way in which colonialism set these countries up for failure and uh, the way in which the powerful countries in the global north tried to prevent them from transitioning from being producers of primary products that are cheap and exporter and exporting those to the global north for manufacture and then importing uh, manufactured goods that are expensive, leaving them with um, imbalances of trade, massive debt, etc. So um, um, I look at those kinds of issues um, in, in both books and Um, The role during the Cold War of the Western powers in particular, and I would say the United States especially, but also France and and Britain, Portugal, Belgium, in um, undermining countries that attempted to find a third way, that attempted to be non-aligned, not choose sides between East and West, um, develop different models of development that were not necessarily the capitalist model of development And they were generally prevented from doing so effectively. And many of the governments were undermined either by covert operations or simply by freezing them out of international markets and uh, ability to access bank loans, etc. So um, the books don't absolve all African actors of responsibility for the situation, but um, they try to make distinctions between different groups of Africans, the, the authoritarian regimes and warlords and um, um, other kinds of opportunists versus ordinary people who are struggling to survive. And outsiders often lump them all together as Africans and uh, don't see distinctions that we're fairly quick to to understand in our own society. Um, so... Um, It's it's looking at the interaction of those powerful elite players in Africa and the outsiders um, from whom they benefit and whom they do benefit.
0: And then and looking at these uh, specifically, what are some of the common factors that we see again and again with foreign intervention in Africa?
1: Okay, um, well, the the intervention that we see is that that um, outside powers intervene in countries where they perceive they have some kind of national interest, whether it be economic interest, political interest, strategic interest. And they will use various kinds of rationales that they attempt to root in international law to justify their intervention. Um, so in during the Cold War, one heard quite a lot about communist aggression and that if there was an African country that was trying to make its way in this third way, Uh, Frequently, while they were simply being ardent nationalists, looking out for the interests of their own people, they were accused by Western powers, that is, former imperial powers by the United States, of being um, stooges of Moscow or communist puppets or the victims of communist aggression. And so this sort of communist boogeyman became um, a common trope to justify intervention, whether or not it existed, and more often than not, it didn't. Um, these were simply you know indigenous a- actors, leaders, people um, trying to claim their own right to self-determination. After the Cold War, so the 1990s through um, the you know first couple decades of the war on terror, and that's the subject of the 2018 book, um, the Cold War um, communist threat motivation, of course, is is no longer, What's operative? So, new rationales have been developed, and the first there are really two. Uh, although the first one has a, a sort of sub-rationale. So, the first one is response to instability. The idea that a country is unstable, and the instability is going to cause uh, a, a threat to the peace, not only in that country but to the to the region and maybe even beyond. A corollary of that threat. Um, to, um, to stability is um, the desire to protect civilian lives. So if there's a conflict going on, um, whether it be a repressive regime or a rebellion or an insurgency, the idea is that outsiders go in to save civilians where their government either is uh, una- unwilling or unable to, or even perhaps cooperating in the killing of civilians. Um, so unwilling or able to protect them or is actually part of the problem. And there were developments that have been coming along really since the end of World War II with the Nuremberg trials, but um, especially since the genocide in the Balkans and in Rwanda where outsiders really stood by and, and let these things happen. And there was an international outcry. And so now there's this new idea that um state sovereignty is not a sufficient um barrier to um an intervention to save civilian lives that, that that um repressive states can't hide behind the curtain of state sovereignty so that's one motivation and the second is um um the uh, war on terror um the global war on terror which began in the 1990s, really, 1980s, 1990s, but really has taken off since um, after the September 2001 terrorist attacks on the United States. And that's been increasingly what's propelled the U.S. and France and some other countries into action in Africa.
0: And then I have a question about um, international institutions. You mentioned um, towards the beginning there that they they are often used or found a way to justify foreign intervention. How do they fit into this? Are they wholly the tools of major powers? Do they sort of sit uncomfortably astride this process? What is your take?
1: Right. Um, Yeah, international institutions are complex, obviously, and partially because there's such a diversity of institutions and interests that fall under that general rubric. But um, during the Cold War, the main kinds of interventions were um, done by individual nation states or perhaps um, a couple nation states. So the former imperial powers uh, felt they had a prerogative to intervene in, in their former colonies pretty much at will. And France was especially egregious in this regard. Um, the superpowers, but again, especially the United States felt that it had the right to intervene to protect its interests, uh, not necessarily to the extent that it had done in Central and South America, but um, increasingly um, the United States replaced the European powers as a major intervener in Africa after decolonization. Um, the Soviet Union and China generally responded to uh, Western involvement. They generally did not initiate the intervention, uh, but if they felt that their, their interests were threatened by aggressive action by Western countries, uh, they did get involved. Um, Cuba uh, had its own independent foreign policy that was often often to some extent in sync with the Soviet Union, but not always. And there were times when there were severe disagreements between those two Powers, even though the United States tend to see them as one and the same, as Cuba being just sort of a subsidiary of the Soviet Union. Um, but the multinational state-based organizations became much more important after the end of the Cold War. And here I'm talking about global organizations like the United Nations. Um, then beneath that tier, the, the European Union, the Arab League. Um, and then the regional organizations would be those that focused on a particular continent. So in the case of Africa, it would be the organization of African unity that was then replaced by the African Union. And then the sub-regional organizations in Africa would be those that focused on regions within Africa, like in West Africa, there's the economic community of West African states. And there's different regional organizations in East Africa, in Central Africa, in Southern Africa, et cetera. And while those um, organizations, and here I'm talking especially about the regional and sub-regional, the African Union and the um, sub-regional organizations in Africa, they've been involved in military interventions that include troops from a number of different countries in Africa. Um, They've also been involved in attempting to negotiate peace settlements, The problem with them is that they're often underfunded and rely on outside funding, such as funding from the United States and the European Union, to um, uh, promote their, their, um, their objectives, their mandates, to fulfill their mandates. And that means that these extracontinental global north powers still have an outside influence over their operations. Another problem with them is that they're composed of individual nation states um, and each of those nation states has its own interests and often there are conflicting interests within the regional or sub-regional body and conflicting interests over the very country in which they may be sending peacekeeping forces. And so there have been um, all kinds of scandals that have involved troops in supposedly neutral multilateral sub-regional organizations but that have been involved in corrupt practices that have been involved in sexual abuse of civilians that have been involved in trafficking minerals and other natural resources um, or that are promoting the government or the rebel group while other members are promoting a different rebel group or um, uh, you know th- that kind of thing and so that becomes extremely problematic Um, that there aren't really any neutral players, any neutral power brokers involved in the situation. So each case has to be treated differently. And um, um, the case studies in the book do look at the um, uneven role and the questionable role of Uh, some of the peacekeeping
0: operations. So that's an excellent transition into the question of these case studies, and you have a number of them uh, just in this book looking at foreign intervention. Why did you pick the ones that you did, and what do you think we can learn from them?
1: Okay. Uh, Well, thank you. Uh, One of the goals of this book um, was to try to get a sense of patterns and trends across the continent rather than focusing on Southern Africa or East Africa, West Africa, the Sahel, the Horn of Africa, etc. While those are very worthy projects, and obviously if one selects one region or a couple regions, one can go into much greater depth and detail. But my goal, given that I was writing for non-experts, was to try to give give a sense of the continent and also to include North Africa in the continent. It's often grouped together by uh, scholars, media, et cetera, as part of the Middle East. And in many ways that makes sense uh, for some things, but it's also very much a part of the African continent. And what's happened in North Africa has had a a massive impact on Africa, south of the Sahara, uh, especially in the Sahel, the border region of the Sahara Desert, but filtering down into other countries further south. And so um, I very consciously picked case studies that um, um, are from across the continent, North Africa, West Africa, Central Africa, East Africa, um, not Southern Africa. Um, and that's, that's um, although I do make a lot of reference to the role of South Africa because it's been a big um, power broker in the region um, of Africa. But the reason I didn't focus on this is that South Africa was a major arena of foreign intervention during the Cold War and uh, when South Africa and Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, were under white minority rule and when Mozambique and Angola were Portuguese colonies trying to carve out a third way. So they are very prominent in the book that came out in 2013, but in this Era the post Cold War era, most of the conflicts have uh, taken place in East, West, Central, and North Africa, and so they've been the main focus of the case studies. So when I was picking case studies within the region, I tried to pick some uh, with conflicts that were very representative of these. Two factors, two factors with that corollary of responsibility to protect civilian lives that motivated foreign political and military intervention. Um, So again, those were response to instability with the corollary of protecting civilian lives during this instability, and then secondly, the war on terror. So I picked uh, the case studies of Somalia from the end of the Cold War, and the book goes through 2017. So all of these case studies... And at least by 2017, um, some and earlier. And then I I looked at Sudan. And since 2011, South Sudan, when the southern part of the country declared independence uh, after a popular referendum, Rwanda um, and many people in the general public know something about the Rwanda genocide. So I thought it was really important to focus on that and the way in which the international community didn't respond or in the case of France, supported the government that was committing the genocide and the spillover effect from the Rwanda genocide into the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, which was also featured in, in the book during the Cold War when it was called the Congo and then Zaire. Um, so I, I'm often looking at the way in which one conflict leads to another or intensifies another. Um then after the Congo I moved to West Africa and look at two very interrelated conflicts, one in Liberia and the other in Sierra Leone. And then next door to those two countries was the French colony of Côte d'Ivoire, um, where there was definitely a spillover effect of the other two conflicts, especially insurgents, um, um militias, armed groups of unemployed youth who'd been fighting in those wars, had nothing to look forward to when the wars were over, and moved on in search of new conflicts, and some of them wound up in in Côte d'Ivoire. After Côte d'Ivoire, I look at the Arab Spring, which began in 2011. So I'm moving not only from region to region, but I'm moving across time um, chronologically. And the Arab Spring in North Africa was especially important in Three countries, Tunisia, uh, Egypt, and Libya. And so I, I look at those three case studies um, and the impact they had on events to the south. The Libya case study segues very directly into the conflict in Mali that emerged in late 2012, early 2013. And I talk a great deal about the foreign political military. And political and military intervention by NATO, um, led by France, supported by the United States, um, and also the role of a, a West African ta- military task force, that um, um, led to um, a secessionist movement in Mali, a military coup in Mali, the movement into Mali of Al Qaeda and later Islamic State uh, forces as the power vacuum grew, and one of the re- uh, recurring themes in these case studies is the uh, lack of insight that the um, military interveners have had about what comes next the lack of thought lack of planning perhaps even lack of knowledge of the culture the history of the region that leads to these blinders and how time and again um, foreign intervention has resulted in uh, power vacuums that open the door to the the um, the seizure of power, or at least the strong um, new presence of international terrorist networks that hadn't been there before. So the Mali case study also segues into um, a case study in the same chapter of Nigeria, where I mention a number of conflicts that focus especially on Boko Haram in the Northeast. And Boko Haram is also very much linked to the N- Libyan conflict. And after that, I um, I leave the the regional case studies, and the two final chapters take a much closer look at the role of the United States, really an outsized role of the United States, um, in political and military intervention in Africa, but also looking at um, the role of economic aid, of trying to reshape these African societies as neoliberal capitalist states, uh, the ways in which. Um, the economic uh, subordination of these countries has led to their political crises, which are still not being addressed. And So the conflicts are often treated as military problems that require military solutions. And my argument is that no, they're fundamentally problems of um, inequality, of unequal distribution of power and resources, of grievances by people who've been abused or neglected by their state. And unless those underlying grievances are addressed and resolved, the problems and the conflicts are going to continue uh, and become exacerbated. And the military intervention is actually counterproductive in creating further hostility and um, anti-American or um, anti-French reaction and um, has in many ways, as I've said already, opened the door to the involvement of international terrorist networks that had not previously been there. So the case studies are really intended to illustrate um, and provide evidence to support the main uh, arguments in the book about the motivations for foreign intervention and the negative consequences of many of those interventions.
0: Now, it would be hard to read this book um, and come away with any conclusion other than that these foreign interventions are yeah, I think in your most generous assessments, highly mixed in how effective they are. Um, yet they happen over and over again. So what is it in your view that's informing these failures, these policy failures?
1: Well, it's more what's not informing them, um, that um, the pitfalls of foreign political and military intervention uh, suggest that there are certain requirements for a lasting peace, and those have not been met. And and essentially, that is that uh, they need to um, um, focus on these underlying grievances that are really as simple as haves and have nots, that, that people want access to good food, good health care, sanitation, education, jobs, um, responsive governments, transparency. And time and again, these, these uh, grievances are not addressed. And the people who have these grievances are not even invited to the negotiating table. Uh, and here I'm talking about women's organizations, youth organizations, civil society organizations, elders, um, that if they're brought in at all, they're brought in in the 11th hour and told, here's the document, sign it and go get your people to implement it. And my argument is that that they have to be listened to from the get-go. They have to be taken seriously. Their grievances have to be addressed, or it's just going to that that you know the conflicts are just going to be surface in a new way, and that the solutions aren't military and they're not quick. There's no quick fix. And I think again, um, you know, the U.S. government, and I would say especially now, wants immediate evidence of a of a change or you know, we're going to pull funding. We're not going to support this or that humanitarian project because you're not doing what we want in the international stage. And these are just really wrongheaded and um, very, very counterproductive. So um, um, that's that's what I hope readers will take away, is that we need to know more about the history and the culture and the previous interactions um, between the countries involved in these conflicts and uh, their neighbors and the outsiders who are intervening and try to understand why they might be skeptical or um, even rejecting of some of these initiatives and some of the settlements that have been imposed from above and and outside.
0: There's a question I, I take a special degree of pleasure in asking people, sort of in the era of Trump, which is, Uh, To what extent is Trump dramatically unmaking U.S. foreign policy in Africa? Is he revising it? Is it a substantive revision? What do you see playing out at this moment?
1: Well, Trump is obviously very confused and very ignorant about a lot of things. And (laughs) he's surrounded by advisors who are inconsistent and who disagree amongst themselves. Now, that isn't unusual in an administration and one of the other things I try to do in the book is get away from the monoliths of the U.S. government this or the U.S. government that and look at different interests and arguments within the administration, debates, struggles that went on behind the scenes before a policy was determined and, you know, those who are dissatisfied with the final outcome and why. And um, I think that is important to look at. But we, we really see that in, in Trump's foreign policy with the neoconservatives who want to remake the world an American image under American authority. And those who are more isolationists who said, those people are a mess. They're not giving us what we want. We're going to isolate them. We're going to punish them. And so Trump will sometimes say we're withdrawing aid or withdrawing troops. And then the next day, um, one of his um, uh, cabinet uh, ministers or other high-level advisors suggests that, in fact, no, we're going to intensify military involvement. Um, And so both things are happening at the same time. Um, I would say that we've seen more continuity, therefore, than one might have expected, but a lot more incoherence as well. Um, Trump, for instance, doesn't seem to understand that Congress wants to give foreign aid to Africa. That that the uh, constituencies of members of Congress are very much in favor of giving economic aid. Uh, the American Chamber of Commerce, which is one of the most uh, lucrative lobby lobbies in the United States, is very much behind it because. Most of the dollars we give come back to America. They have to buy American Agricultural Products Act, American equipment, uh, farm machinery, transport in American planes. Um, this is a way of subsidizing the American economy. Um, and so people in Congress don't want to cut for aid. Um, um, so there are struggles over that issue. Uh, the military um, counterterrorism using uh, U.S. special forces, drones, targeted assassinations. Those are things that really were very, very prominent in the Obama administration. And President Obama engaged in those kinds of activities because there was so much objection to American boots on the ground where large numbers of Americans were going to die. And so instead, there were these higher tech operations where the main victims were the indigenous people. And here I'm talking about a lot of civilians, untold numbers of civilians, as well as possibly people who are involved in the violent extremist organizations. And this generated enormous hostility uh towards the United States in various countries that are dealt with in the case studies. President Obama was aware of that and in 2013 began to talk about um, new restrictions on areas that would require high level approval for these kinds of operations um, unless uh, and, and to not engage in them unless American troops were threatened directly or the United States was directly threatened and to make sure that there were minimal civilian casualties. Trump did lift some of those restrictions. So those came late in the Obama administration. Um, They were applied and then Trump lifted them in Libya and Somalia. Um, But, um, you know, he's talked about drawing down American special operations forces, but we haven't yet seen that happen to any great extent, and we've seen a massive escalation of attacks in Somalia um, compared to the Obama administration. So we really don't know. What we do know is that he has um, very distorted understandings of what Islam is and confounds Islam with violent extremists, and this is extremely dangerous. We saw this with his um, immigration um Legislation and an executive orders, his attempt to keep Muslims out, his, his verbiage about Muslims, both during the campaign and after he took office, high level administration advisors and other officials who confound um, Muslim fundamentalist people who have conservative religious beliefs with politically conservative or culturally conservative groups. Um, um, and and violent extremists, and um, this is extremely dangerous, um, both for the people involved who may be targeted, but also for working with allies in the region who similarly hope to um, disempower violent extremists. Uh, the vast majority of Muslims in the world have completely disavowed the extremists that that um, that, that that Trump is is talking about. This is not representative of. Islam as it's understood and practiced by um, you know billions of people today
0: now you've alluded to this a little bit um, lessons you want to impress upon policymakers and activists and the public um, but i'd like I'd like to delve a little bit more into that. What are you thinking of? I mean is it just the importance of understanding local context or are there other lessons to draw out of this
1: um Well, I think that's key and um, something that's really been absent from U.S. foreign policy in many respects um, during the Cold War as well. Uh, um, Hence the uh, Sputnik-inspired, what ultimately came the um, Title VI of the Education Act that granted money for language and area studies. But originally that was the National Defense Education Act, um, that that was hoping that Americans would begin to study other regions of the world and understand their histories and cultures and learn to speak and understand their languages, so that we wouldn't be in the dark and and would be able to have more effective um, policies that would be in American interests. Um, um, so um, that is not you know it's not been a requirement for people to have this kind of background to be appointed to high level positions in, in the various government bureaucracies that deal with foreign policy and military policy. Um, and the Trump administration has been quite egregious in, in emptying out the state department and especially of experts and not having people in high level positions. Many of the ambassadorial posts are still unfulfilled and unfulfilled. Um, um, the Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs wasn't appointed until late 2018, I believe. So th- there's a there's a huge neglect um, of diplomacy and um, the parts of the U.S. government that historically have been tasked with understanding of other parts of the world. There has been not only under Trump but also under um, um, presidents. George W. Bush and Obama, a a real shift towards the securitization, the militarization of U.S. policy towards Africa from humanitarian aid, from uh, human security issues to counterterrorism and the war on terror. And even when the humanitarian endeavors are continued, more of them are under the auspices of the Defense Department rather than the Department of State or the U.S. Agency for International Development. And this means that, you know, the, um, the, the lens through which the policies are um, developed and enacted are the lens of um, the military. Um, and those folks are not necessarily as attuned as the civilians uh, to, to um, these other needs I've been talking about in terms of poverty and underdevelopment and opportunity and Um, And we haven't even begun to talk about things like climate change, which are really, really significant in terms of the African conflicts. Um, And, of course, the global north is responsible for most of the the climate change, and the global south is suffering um, disproportionately the consequences of it. Um, So um, making those linkages, understanding the role of, Economic intrusion in in uh, the conflicts, the role of climate change, the role of environmental degradation, the role of outsiders plundering land and resources, and too often the understanding is uh, the misunderstanding is that it's it's about religion, it's about uh, Muslim extremists, it's about conflicts between Muslims and Christians, or it's about ethnic conflict, which is usually termed tribalism. And while ethnicity and religion can be factors in these conflicts, they're usually masks for these underlying problems that have been mentioned, the the inequality, the lack of um, access to resources and to power and transparent governments. And I guess my basic policy prescription would be you know, get people in positions of authority who understand these regions, who understand what will happen if you uh, remove a dictator who has squashed all internal opposition, undermined civil society institutions. So there is nothing uh, between him and his cronies uh, and the people. And if He and his cronies are removed. There'll be this massive power vacuum. Who will move into it? What are the forces of the region that are likely to take advantage of this? And as we didn't see this in Afghanistan after the Soviet departure in 1988, we didn't see it in Iraq before um, the um, U.S. and uh, NATO, uh, you know, the U.S. assisted overthrow of, of Gaddafi. And we didn't, we haven't really understood it in Syria. We didn't understand it with Qaddafi, Qaddafi with in Libya, um, that, that um, it's, you know, our our foreign policy is just very ill-informed and short-sighted. Um, and to me, that's a major thing that needs to be taken. Hmm.
0: So one of the things that that struck me through my life, and there there are two examples I'm thinking of here, is sudden explosions of public interest in the United States in African human rights issues. So when I was in high school, Darfur, well, my last year of high school suddenly sort of exploded in interest. And then my last year in college, um, invisible children, again, suddenly sort of exploded, driven in no small part by social media, And, and then these tend to fade away pretty quickly. And what is the role of inconsistent public opinion and interest in driving these problematic interventions?
1: Well, I I think in some cases they, um, um, well, I'm thinking of invisible children, um, which was one that many people who are knowledgeable about the region, um, which is Uganda, Central Africa, so uh, Sudan, Democratic Republic of Congo, Central African Republic. Um, And that was focusing on this violent extremist group called the Words Resistance Army uh, that was targeting children. And one of the real problems with that group was that they really were um, focusing on uh, foreign military intervention as the answer.
0: And the (laughs)
1: people were not really aware of the history and the culture that I've been describing. So, um, there were, you know, special operations troops that have gone in, um, the disastrous results of military intervention that I've described in the other case studies have not resulted. The the intervention was relatively small. It was totally unsuccessful. I mean, they never, they never found, um, uh, Joseph Kony, the leader of this organization, and, um, you know, just wandered around this region um, somewhat aimlessly for for years. And um, effectively, Kony was pushed out of Uganda and went traipsing through these other countries, wrecking havoc. And that, of course, is what's happened with many of these extremist groups In the case studies that I look at, um, when they're driven out of the towns of northern Mali by the French and neighboring African intervention force, they go into the remote areas where they target civilians who are unprotected. They cross the borders into Niger and Cameroon and target those civilians. In Somalia, al-Shabaab was pushed out of the capital city to the south and crossed over into Kenya and began to target people there or set bombs in Uganda because the Kenyan and Ugandan armies were involved in fighting al-Shabaab in Somalia. So, um, um, you know, the focus on, um, the focus by many um, civil society activist groups has also been fairly narrow and um, ill-informed, not really understanding the history of the region that, It's not these particular bad guys, but um, underlying problems where if those, those groups are quashed, others will emerge. And those that you're championing, championing now because they're the enemy of your enemy may not be as pristine and devoid of human rights abuses as you think. And in many cases it's been found that they are also abusing civilians and the civil society groups, you know, outside the activist groups outside, either ignore that or they disavow that or they just lose interest and move on to the next thing. Um, so in the case of Darfur, I don't think that the civil society groups made a huge difference in u s policy. Um, there were already debates going on in high levels of the administration over what to do and how to respond. Um, but none of them have approached the kind of strength and magnitude and unity that the anti-apartheid, the global anti-apartheid movement did uh, in the nineteen, late 1970s, 1980s, early 1990s. And I think in some ways that's because apartheid is much more of a straightforward case. It's an oppressive white minority doing horrifically brutal things to a black majority. And while... Certainly there were um uh real problems with um some some groups um that were in, in opposition to apartheid that also engaged in human rights abuses that weren't nearly as extensive as some of the uh groups that, that we're now seeing that are involved in insurgencies and, and rebellions. And the baggage was certainly not nearly as great as that of the apartheid state in what it was doing, both in South Africa and in the region. Um, And so it never became as much of an issue. Um, um, uh, Certainly more has come out with the Truth truth and Reconciliation Commissions in South Africa and elsewhere after the fact. Um, But that kind of unity is hard to reproduce when the situation on the ground is much, much and the role of outsiders is not as um, straightforward or uniform. There were so many countries involved in supporting the South African economy, uh, engaged in trade with um, investments, subsidiaries. And that's not nearly as much the case in these other countries. But yes, uh, outside forces, outside corporations are profiting from the minerals in the Congo or the oil in the Niger Delta, et cetera. But, um, 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 It's not as widespread amongst a group of outside countries.
0: I have just two more questions for you. And and one of them uh, sort of grapples with what the role of the war on terror is here. Uh, To what extent has it sort of replaced uh, the Cold War as a framework for foreign intervention by the West, especially by the United States? Is it different in any sense or has it mostly just stepped into the role?
1: Well, I think it plays a very similar role in that it conflates very complex situations and complex and diverse groups of people under the easy rubric of, you know, communist threat or terrorist threat, um, masking the real uh, underlying grievances and/or aspirations of the indigenous people. So, as I mentioned earlier, the communist threat uh, was used to target groups that were not necessarily Marxist-Leninist, but were simply African nationalists that did not want to play the subsidiary role after political independence that they had played under colonial rule, that wanted to shape a new political and economic and social system, which um, Western powers, the former colonial powers, the new Cold War American superpower, found extremely threatening to their economic and interests. And so they targeted those governments and those movements as well as the very, very few that um, declared themselves Marxist-Leninist. Similarly, the war on terror, um, um, dictatorships that um, what resources economic and military from the West will often point to rebel groups, insurgent groups, even civil society Nonviolent protesters and and um dubbed them terrorists uh in order to get military and economic aid and while there are technically some legal constraints on the use of us aid um um uh, against um you know civilian populations it has been done and um you know when it's uncovered it comes out in the media and there's a bit of a boo but not necessarily any sustained focus um Many of the U.S. Uh, collaborators in the so-called war on terror in West Africa, for instance, are have egregiously violated hu- uh, human and civil rights. Uh, I'm thinking of Chad, I'm thinking of various um, uh, Nigerian governments or and or their military um, under governments that are trying but unsuccessful in, in gaining control of um, the armed forces, in terms of stopping abuses, <clears throat> um, and there are many, many others. So, so they are getting U.S. military aid, and we are training them supposedly in counterterrorism tactics. But they turn around and use the tactics and the weapons against their own people. Uh, and this this was uh, really um, illustrated in in the situation in Mali, which is one of the case studies covered in the two thousand eighteen book where um, the overthrow of Gaddafi led to Tuareg um, uh, crack troops who had been trained by Gaddafi, but who who had originated in Mali and Niger, returning home with sophisticated weapons taken from Gaddafi stockpiles that had not been guarded by uh, the interventionist forces, by the NATO, French, and American forces that, that, that had come in. And so they took their their training and their weapons home and began an insurgency for political independence, which was there had been many conflicts amongst the Tuaregs in the north of Mali because it was a region that was discriminated against, neglected. um, The people had been abused a lot by the southern-based government. And when that secessionist movement gained full force, the government in the military government. Um, sorry, it was not a military government. The government in the south, the military of that government staged a coup d'état, and the, the 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 person who led the coup d'état in protest of the ineffective dealing with the the secessionist movement was trained by U.S. Uh, special operations forces in counterterrorism. So we've got you know. All these, all these things uh, going on, and he, you know, he overthrew this army captain, overthrew the democratically elected government, um, uh, and he'd been trained by the U.S. So these kinds of things happen time and again, and that's very similar to the Cold War, where um, dictatorships like the Somali government, the Zairean government, now the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, uh, Sudan, major recipients of um, uh, western arms and um, use them supposedly against communism but really against their own people
0: i have just one last question for you now that this book has been published what are you thinking of doing next
1: well um i i would like to continue writing, but shorter, historically informed pieces about current African issues, such as those I I dealt with in in, in the book, but in ways that make them uh, more quickly and readily accessible. So publishing them online. um, But I I would still like to reach more non-specialist audiences uh, rather than um, scholars who are experts in, in uh, in the particular areas I'm covering. And um, I, I, I will probably continue to address many of the issues that are addressed in, in the book as, as these issues and responses to them evolve. So um, some of those issues uh, which are mentioned in the book but aren't dealt with in, in great depth are um, the impact of climate change, environmental degradation, the plunder of resources, um, everybody wants to know about the role of China, uh, which is um, certainly mentioned in the book, but it's not a major focus of the book because China's intervention up until now has been primarily economic uh, rather than military, um, although that is changing. Uh, so touching on some of those issues in more depth, but also continuing to address misconceptions about Islam, uh, which underlie our wrongheaded approach in the war on terror and the misdirection of the war on terror, which emphasizes military action rather than resolving underlying grievances. So, um, and then I suppose finally the impact of foreign imposed economic policies on Africa, which were a major factor in the political crisis of the 1990s and continued to be a real problem in that continent being able to move forward.
0: Fascinating. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me and for asking such provocative questions. I I truly appreciate it.